0: Chapter Thirty Three of Sir Gibby. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devorah Allen. Sir Gibby by George MacDonald. Chapter Thirty Three The Mains. They reached at length the Valley Road. The water that ran in the bottom was the lorry. Three days ago it was a lively little stream, winding and changing within its grassy banks, here resting silent in a deep pool, there running and singing over its pebbles. Now it had filled and far overflowed its banks and was a swift river. It had not yet so far up the valley encroached on the road, but the torrents on the mountain had already in places much injured it, and with considerable difficulty they crossed some of the new-made gullies. When they approached the bridge, however— by which they must cross the lorry to reach the mains, their worst trouble lay before them. For the enemy, with whose reinforcements they had all the time been descending, showed himself ever in greater strength the farther they advanced. And here the road was flooded for a long way on both sides of the bridge. There was therefore a good deal of waiting to be done, but the road was an embankment, there was little current, and in safety at last they ascended the rising ground on which the farm buildings stood. When they reached the yard, they sent Gibby to find shelter for Crummy, and themselves went up to the house. The Lord preserve us cried Jean Maver, with uplifted hands when she saw them enter the kitchen. He'll do that, Mim, returned Janet with a smile. But what can he do? Gin ye be drunk out not the hills, what's to come o' us in the hell? I would ken that, said Jean. The water's no up to your door yet, remarked Janet. God forbid, retorted Jean, as if the very mention of such a state of things was too dreadful to be polite. "'But, eh, you would wit!' "'Wit's not the word,' said Robert, trying to laugh, but failing from sheer exhaustion and the beginnings of an asthmatic attack. The farmer, hearing their voices, came into the kitchen. A middle-sized and middle-aged, rather coarse-looking man, with keen eyes who took snuff amazingly. His manner was free with a touch of satire. He was proud of driving a hard bargain, but was thoroughly hospitable." He had little respect for person or thing, but showed an occasional touch of tenderness. "'Hoot, Rob," he said roughly as he entered, "'I thought ye had more sense. What's brought ye here at sic a time?' But as he spoke he held out his snuff-box to the old man. "'Phil needs at sir,' answered Robert, taking a good pinch. "Necessity," retorted the farmer. "'Was ye o a a meal?' O' oh, a dry meal I don't by this time, sir,' replied Robert. "Hoots." I was we were all in like necessity—well up upon the hill instead of down here upon the ho. It's just clean ridiculous. You should a ken better at your age, Rob. You should have thought twice, man." "'Deed, sir,' answered Robert, quietly finishing his pinch of snuff. "'There was small need and less time to think, and Glashgar burstin, and the water comin' o'er the tap o' the boat as gin toward a muckle oarshot wheel, and not a place for folk to bide in.' "'You did think Janet and me would be two such old fools as put on our Sunday clothes to swim in, "'gin we thought to see things as we left them when we get back. "'You see, sir, though the house be found upon a rock, it's maest bigot it of fells, "'and the foundations I look even to see out again. "'When the force of the water grows less, it'll come down upon the riggin' with the heil weight of it.' "'Aye,' said Janet, in a low voice, "'the live-stones mun come to the live-rock to big the house it'll stand.' "'What think ye, Mr. Fergus? You it's going to be a minister?' said Robert, referring to his wife's words, as the young man looked in at the door of the kitchen. "'Let him be,' interposed his father, blowing his nose with unnecessary violence. "'Setna him preachin' afore his time. "'Fest the whisky, Fergus, and give old Robert a dram. "'Heath, gin the water be runnin' o'er the tap o' your house, man, it was time to flit. "'Fest two or three glasses, Fergus. We have need of something that's not water.' "'It's perfectly ridiculous.' Having taken a little of the whiskey, the old people went to change their clothes for some Jean had provided, and in the meantime she made up her fire and prepared some breakfast for them. "'And where's your dummy?' she asked as they re-entered the kitchen. "'He had poor Crummy to look after,' answered Janet. "'But he might a been in o'er this time.' "'He'll be wi' Donal in the byre, no doubt,' said Jean. "'He's eyes some shy a-comin' in wantin' an invite.' She went to the door and called with a loud voice across the yard, through the wind and the clashing torrents. "Donal, Send Dummy in till his breakfast!' "'He's away till his sheep,' cried Donal in reply. "'Preserve us! The crater'll be lost!' said Jean. "'Less likely nor any man about the place,' bawled Donal, half angry with his mistress for calling his friend Dummy. "'Gibby kens better what he's about, nor any two thinks him a fool, cause he canna let out such stuff and nonsense as they canna hold in.' Jean went back to the kitchen, only half reassured concerning her brownie, and far from contented with his absence. But she was glad to find that neither Janet nor Robert appeared alarmed at the news. I was the creature had had some breakfast," she said. "He has a piece in his pouch," answered Janet. "He's not unprovided with what can be made merry." "I didn't rightly understand you there," said Jean. "You cannot have failed to remark, ma'am," answered Janet. "'At when the maister set himself to feed the in thousands, "'he took into his hand what there was, and wrought upon that to make mare o it. "'I ha wished sometimes that the laddie with the five barley loaves and the two small fishes "'hadna been there that day. "'I would fain ken how the master would have managed wantin anything to begin upon. "'As it was, he aye hang what he did upon something his father had done afore him.' Hoots returned Jean, who looked upon Janet as a lover of conundrums. "'Ye're I wrasslin' with run nuts and took mouthfuls.' "'Oh, no, not I,' answered Janet. "'Only whiles, when the spirit of spearin' gets the upper hand o' me for a season.' "'I doubt that same spirit will lead ye far from the still water some day, Janet,' said Jean, stirring the porridge vehemently. "'Oh, I think not,' answered Janet very calmly. "'When the master says, what's that to thee? "'I take care he has not to say it twice.' but just get up and follow him. This was beyond Jean, but she held her peace, for though she feared for Janet's orthodoxy and had a strong opinion of the superiority of her own common sense, in which, as in the case of all who pride themselves in the same, there was a good deal more of the common than of the sense, she had the deepest conviction of Janet's goodness, and regarded her as a sort of heaven-favored idiot, whose utterances were somewhat privileged. Janet, for her part, looked upon Jean as— an honest woman will get a heap o' late some day. When they had eaten their breakfast, Robert took his pipe to the barn, saying there was not much danger of fire that day. Janet washed up the dishes and sat down to her book, and Jean went out and in, attending to many things. Meantime the rain fell, the wind blew, the water rose. Little could be done beyond feeding the animals, threshing a little corn in the barn, and twisting straw ropes for the thatch of the ricks of the coming harvest if indeed there was a harvest on the road, for as the day went on it seemed almost to grow doubtful whether any ropes would be wanted, while already not a few of last year's ricks from farther up the country were floating past the mains, down the dower to the sea. The sight was a dreadful one. Had an air of the day of judgment about it to farmers' eyes. From the mains, to right and left, beyond the rising ground on which the farm buildings stood, everywhere as far as the bases of the hills, instead of fields, was water. Yellow-brown, here in still expanse or slow progress, there sweeping along in fierce current. The quieter parts of it were dotted with trees, divided by hedges, shaded with ears of corn. Upon the swifter parts floated objects of all kinds. Mr. Duff went wandering restlessly from one spot to another, finding nothing to do. In the gloaming, which fell the sooner that a rain blanket miles thick wrapped the earth up from the sun, he came across from the barn— and entering the kitchen, dropped weary with hopelessness on a chair. I can weel understand, he said, what for the Lord should set down Bony, and set up Louis, but what for he should guard corn grow, and sin send, send a spate to swim away with it. That's mere no mortal man can see the sense Hold your tongue, Janet. I'm no saying there's anything wrong. I'm saying nothing but the sart truth, and I cannot see the what for of it. I cannot see the good o't till anybody. "'I think's on the road to the German Ocean. The land's just miltin away into the sea." Janet sat silent, knitting hard at a stocking she had got hold of that Jean had begun for her brother. She knew argument concerning the uses of adversity was vain with a man who knew of no life but that which consisted in eating and drinking, sleeping and rising, working and getting on in the world. As to such things existing only that they may subserve a real life, he was almost as ignorant, notwithstanding he was an elder of the church, as any heathen. From being nearly in the center of its own land, the farmsteading of the mains was at a considerable distance from any other. But there were two or three cottages upon the land, and as the evening drew on, another aged pair who lived in one only a few hundred yards from the house made their appearance, and were soon followed by the wife of the foreman with her children who lived farther off. Quickly the night closed in, and Gibby was not come. Robert was growing very uneasy. Janet kept comforting and reassuring him. "'There's one thing,' said the old man. "'Oscar's with him.' "Ay," responded Janet, unwilling, in the hearing of others, to say a word that might seem to savor of rebuke to her husband, yet pained that he should go to the dog for comfort. "Ay, he's a well-made animal, Oscar. There's been a fourth o' sheep care pittin' in him. Ye see him it made him bein' a shepherd himself. Kins what's want it o' the dog.' None but her husband understood what lay behind the words. "'Oscar's no with him,' said Donal. The dog came to me in the byre, long after Gibby was away, greetin' like and lookin' for him. Robert gave a great sigh, but said nothing. Janet did not sleep a wink that night. She had so many to pray for. Not Gibby only, but every one of her family was in perils of waters, all being employed along the valley of the dower. It was not, she said, confessing to her husband her sleeplessness, that she was afraid. She was only keeping them company and holding the gate open she said. The latter phrase was her picture paraphrase for praying. She never said she prayed. She held the gate open. The wonder is but small that Donal should have turned out a poet. The dawn appeared, but the farm had vanished. Not even heads of growing corn were anywhere more to be seen. The loss would be severe, and John Duff's heart sank within him. The sheep which had been in the mown clover-field that sloped to the burn were now all in the corn-yard, and the water was there with them. If the rise did not soon cease, every rick would be afloat. There was little current, however, and not half the danger there would have been had the houses stood a few hundred yards in any direction from where they were. "'Take your breakfast, John,' said his sister. "'Let them take at hunger's,' he answered. "'Take, or ye'll know heather what to save,' said Jean. Thereupon he fell to and ate, if not with appetite, then with a will that was wondrous.' the flood still grew and still the rain poured and gibby did not come indeed no one any longer expected him whatever might have become of him except by boat the mains was inaccessible now they thought soon after breakfast notwithstanding a strange woman came to the door jean who opened it to her knock stood and stared speechless it was a grey-haired woman with a more disreputable look than her weather-flouted condition would account for grand with her for the ducks she said "'Where come ye frae?' returned Jean, who did not relish the freedom of her address. "'Frae or by?' she answered. "'And who won ye here?' "'Upon my two legs.' Jean looked this way and that over the watery waste, and again stared at the woman in growing bewilderment. They came afterwards to the conclusion that she had arrived probably half drunk the night before, and passed it in one of the outhouses." "'Your legs maun be longer nor they look then, woman,' said Jean, glancing at the lower part of the stranger's person. The woman only laughed—a laugh without any laughter in it. "'What's your wool, now that you are here?' continued Jean, with severity. "'You came not to the mains to tell them there what kind o' of weather it was.' "'I came where I could win,' answered the woman. "'And for my wool that's nothing to nobody No, It's not as it was once. Though gin I could get it, there might be mer nor me the better for it.' And sir, so, as you would gang the length o glace o whisky "'You se so get no whisky here interrupted Jean with determination, the woman gave a sigh and half turned away as if she would depart, but however she might have come, it was plainly impossible she should depart and live. Woman said, Jean, ken and I care nothin about ye and mere I dinna like ye, nor the look o ye And gin it were a fine simmer night at a body could lie there out or gang the farther, I would stick the door in yer face." But that I dare not do the day against my neighbor So, So ye can come in and sit down, and my mind spoken, ye should get what'll hold the life in ye, and a puckle straw in the barn. Only ye mun just have a quiet so, for the goodman disna like tramps. Tramps here, tramps there! Exclaimed the woman, starting into high displeasure. I would ha' ye ken I'm an honest woman and no tramp. Ye sinnor looks so a-like one then," said Jean coolly. But come your ways in, and I shall say nothing so long as ye behave. The woman followed her, took the seat pointed out to her by the fire, and sullenly ate without a word of thanks, the cakes and milk handed her, but seemed to grow better-tempered as she ate, though her black eyes glowed at the food with something of disgust and more of contempt. She would rather have had a gill of whisky than all the milk on the mains. On the other side of the fire sat Janet, knitting away busily with a look of ease and leisure. She said nothing, but now and then cast a kindly glance out of her gray eyes at the woman— there was an air of the lost sheep about the stranger, which, in whomsoever she might see it, always drew her affection. "'She mayn't be one of them the maister came to call,' she said to herself. But she was careful to suggest no approach, for she knew the sheep that has left the flock has grown wild, and is more suspicious and easily startled than one in the midst of its brethren. With the first of the light some of the men on the farm had set out to look for Gibby, well knowing it would be a hard matter to touch Glashgar. About nine they returned, having found it impossible. One of them, caught in a current and swept into a hole, had barely escaped with his life. But they were unanimous that the dummy was better off in any cave on Glashgar than he would be in the best bedroom at the mains if things went on as they threatened. Robert had kept on going to the barn and back again to the kitchen all the morning, consumed with anxiety about the son of his old age. But the barn began to be flooded, and he had to limit his prayer walk to the space between the door of the house and the chair where Janet sat, knitting busily and praying with countenance untroubled amidst the rush of the seaward torrents, the mad howling and screeching of the wind, and the lowing of the imprisoned cattle. "'O oh, Lord,' she said in her great trusting heart, "'gin my bonny man be drownin' in the water, or die in a cold on the hillside, Hold his hand. Bin a far frae him, O Lord. Dinna let him be flate.' To Janet what we call life and death were comparatively small matters, but she was very tender over suffering and fear. She did not pray half so much for Gibby's life as for the presence with him of him who is at the deathbed of every sparrow. She went on waiting and refused to be troubled. True, she was not his bodily mother, but she loved him far better than the mother who, in such a dread for her child, would have been mad with terror. The difference was that Janet loved up as well as down loved down so widely so intensely because the lord of life who gives his own to us was more to her than any child can be to any mother and she knew he could not forsake her gibbie and that his presence was more and better than life she was unnatural was she inhuman yes if there be no such heart and source of humanity as she believed in if there be then such calmness and courage and content as hers are the mere human and natural condition to be hungered after by every aspiring soul. Not until such condition is mine shall I be able to regard life as a godlike gift, except in the hope that it is drawing nigh. Let him who understands understand better. Let him not say the good is less than perfect, or excuse his supineness and spiritual sloth by saying to himself that a man can go too far in his search after the Divine, can sell too much of what he has to buy the field of the treasure either there is no christ of god or my all is his robert seemed at length to have ceased his caged wandering for a quarter of an hour he had been sitting with his face buried in his hands janet rose went softly to him and said in a whisper is gibbie war off robert in this water upon glashgar nor the disciples in the boat upon yon loch of galilee And the maister no come to them robert my ain man didn't guard the master say to ye, owe ye a little faith? Wherefore did ye doubt? Take hurt, man. The master willna have his men be cowards. Ye're right, Janet. Ye're aye right," answered Robert, and rose. She followed him into the passage. "Where are ye going, Robert?" she said. "I wish I could tell ye," he answered. "I'm just hungerin' to be lane. "I wish I had never left Glashgar. There's aye room there." Or gin I could win out among the rigs. There's none of them left, but there's the rooks. They're no swimming yet. I want a gain to the Lord, but I a wit Willie Mackay's clothes. It's a sere pity," said Janet, "'At the men folk disna learn to weave stockings or do something or other with their hands. Money's a time my stockings been most as good as a closet to me, though I couldna just gang into it. But what matters it? A prayer in the heart is sure to find the road out. The heart's the last place it can hold on in a prayin' heart has nae roof to it. she turned and left him comforted by her words he followed her back into the kitchen and sat down beside her gibbie'll be here mayhap when ye least look for him said janet neither of them caught the wild eager gleam that lighted the face of the strange woman at those last words of janet she looked up at her with the sharpest of glances but the same instant compelled her countenance to resume its former expression of fierce indifference and under that became watchful of everything said and done. Still the rain fell and the wind blew. The torrents came tearing down from the hills and shot madly into the rivers. The rivers ran into the valleys and deepened the lakes that filled them. On every side of the mains, from the foot of Glashgar to Gormdu, all was one yellow and red sea, with roaring currents and vortices numberless. It burrowed holes. It opened long deserted channels and watercourses here it deposited inches of rich mould, there yards of sand and gravel, here it was carrying away fertile ground, leaving behind only bare rock or shingle where the corn had been waving. There it was scooping out the bed of a new lake. Many a thick, soft lawn of loveliest grass, dotted with fragrant shrubs and rare trees, vanished, and nothing was there when the water subsided but a stony waste or a gravelly precipice. Woods and copses were undermined, and trees and soil together swept into the wash. Sometimes the very place was hardly there to say it knew its children no more. Houses were torn to pieces, and their contents as from broken boxes sent wandering on the brown waste, through the gray air to the discolored sea, whose saltness for a long way out had vanished with its hue. Haymows were buried to the very top in sand. Others went sailing bodily down the mighty stream. Some of them followed or surrounded like big ducks, by a great brood of ricks for their ducklings. Huge trees went past as if shot down an alpine slide, cottages and bridges of stone giving way before them. Wooden mills, thatched roofs, great mill wheels went dipping and swaying and hobbling down. From the upper windows of the mains, looking towards the chief current, they saw a drift of everything belonging to farms and dwelling-houses that would float. Chairs and tables, chests, carts, saddles, Chests of drawers, tubs of linen, beds and blankets, workbenches, harrows, gurnels, planes, cheeses, churns, spinning-wheels, cradles, iron pots, wheelbarrows—all these and many other things hurried past as they gazed. Everybody was looking, and for a time all had been silent. "'Lord save us!' cried Mr. Duff, with a great start, and ran for his telescope. A four-post bed came rocking down the river, now shooting straight for a short distance— now slowly wheeling, now shivering, struck by some swifter thing, now whirling giddily round in some vortex. The soaked curtains were flacking and flying in the great wind, and, yes, the telescope revealed it. There was a figure in it. Dead or alive the farmer could not tell, but it lay still. A cry burst from them all, but on swept the strange boat, bound for the world beyond the flood, and none could stay its course. The water was now in the stable, and cowhouses and barn— a few minutes more and it would be creeping into the kitchen. The dower and its tributary, the lorry, were about to merge their last difference on the floor of Jean's parlour. Worst of all, a rapid current had set in across the farther end of the stable, which no one had as yet observed. Jean bustled about her work as usual, nor, although it was so much augmented, would accept help from any of her guests until it came to preparing dinner, when she allowed Janet and the foreman's wife to lend her a hand the tramp wife she would not permit to touch plate or spoon, knife or potato. The woman rose in anger at her exclusion and, leaving the house, waded to the barn. There she went up the ladder to the loft where she had slept and threw herself on her straw bed. As there was no doing any work, Donal was out with two of the men, wading here and there where the water was not too deep, enjoying the wonder of the strange looks and curious conjunctions of things. None of them felt much of dismay at the havoc around them. Beyond on their chests with their Sunday clothes and at most two clean shirts. Neither of the men had anything to lose worth mentioning. And for Donal he would gladly have given even his books for such a ploy. "'There's one thing, mither,' he said, entering the kitchen, covered with mud, a rabbit in one hand and a large salmon in the other. "'We're no like to starve, with salmon in the hedges and mappies in the trees.' His master questioned him with no little incredulity. It was easy to believe in salmon anywhere. But rabbits in trees?' "'I ketched it in the branches of a lark,' Donald answered. "'Easy enough, for it couldna rin far, and was mair flate at the water nor at me. But for the salmon, haith I was o'er and o'er wi hit in the water, after I gripped it, ere I could call it my ain.' Before the flood subsided, not a few rabbits were caught in trees, mostly spruce firs and larches. For salmon, they were taken everywhere—among grass, corn, and potatoes, in bushes and hedges and cottages.' One was caught on a lawn with an umbrella. One was reported to have been found in a press-bed. Another, coiled round in a pot hanging from the crook, ready to be boiled only that he was alive and undressed. Donal was still being cross-questioned by his master when the strange woman re-entered. Lying upon her straw, she had seen through the fan-light over the stable door the swiftness of the current there passing, and understood the danger. "'I dote," she said, addressing no one in particular the gale o' the stable winna stand a another half hour "'In mon fa, then,' said the farmer, taking a pitch of snuff in hopeless serenity and turning away. "'Hoots,' said the woman, "'dinna speak that gate, sir. It's no wise-like. Take a dram and take hurt, and dinna fling the calf after the cow. Where's your bottle, sir?' John paid no heed to her suggestion, but Jean took it up. "'The bottle's where youse so no lay hand upon it,' she said. "'Well!' Gin ye hen a mercy upon your whisky? Ye you should have some upon your horse, be sunnygate,' said the woman indignantly. "'What mean ye by that?' returned Jean, with hard voice and eye of blame. "'Ye might at the least give the poor things a chance,' the woman rejoined. "'How would ye do that?' said Jean. "Gin ye loose them? They would but take to the water with fear and drown the sooner.' "Na, nah, Jean,' interposed the farmer. "'They would take care of themselves to the last, and I hold to the driest, just as ye you would sail." Aloin said the stranger, replying to Jean, yet speaking rather as if to herself, while she thought about something else. I wad dreideer drown suman nor tied by the head, but what's the good o' doctrine where there's anything to be done? Ye hae where to put them. What kind is the flares up the stairs, sir? She asked abruptly, turning full on her host with a flash in her deep-set black eyes. Oh, good dale, fleurs. what ither? Answered the farmer. It's the wells, woman, not the flares. We ought to be concerned about in this weather. Gin the jice be strong, and we'll set into the walls. "'What for soon ye take the horse up the stair, into your bedrooms? "'It'll be all to the good o' the walls, for the weight of the beasts "'ll be upon them to hold them down, and the hail hoss again the water. "'And gin I was you, I would put the best o' the kye and the note "'into the parlour and the kitchen here. "'I'm thinking we'll lose them all else, for the buyer walls "'ll gang afford the house. Mr. Duff broke into a strange laughter. "'Would ye not take up the carpets first, woman?' he said. "'I would,' she answered. "'That gang's on spirit, kin there was time. But I tell ye there's none. And you'll buy two or three carpets for the price of one horse.' "'Heath, the woman's in the right!' he cried, suddenly waking up to the sense of the proposal and shot from the house. All the women, Jean making no exception to any help now, rushed to carry the beds and blankets to the garret. Just as Mr. Duff entered the stable from the nearer end, the opposite gable fell out with a great splash, letting in the wide level vision of turbidly raging waters, fading into the obscurity of the wind-driven rain. While he stared aghast, a great tree struck the wall like a battering-ram so that the stable shook. The horses, which had been for some time moving uneasily, were now quite scared. There was not a moment to be lost. Duff shouted for his men. One or two came running, and in less than a minute more those in the house heard the iron-shot feet splashing and stamping through the water as one after another the horses were brought across the yard to the door of the house. Mr. Duff led by the halter his favorite, Snowball, who was a good deal excited, plunging and rearing so that it was all he could do to hold him. He had ordered the men to take the others first, thinking he would follow more quietly, but the moment Snowball heard the first thundering of hoofs on the stair he went out of his senses with terror, broke from his master and went plunging back to the stable. Duff darted after him, but was only in time to see him rush from the further end into the swift current, where he was at once out of his depth, and was instantly caught and hurried, rolling over and over from his master's sight. He ran back into the house and up to the highest window. From that he caught sight of him a long way down, swimming. Once or twice he saw him turned heels overhead, only to get his neck up again, presently, and swim as well as before, but at last it was in the direction of the dower, which would soon, his master did not doubt— sweep his carcass into the North Sea. With troubled heart he strained his sight after him as long as he could distinguish his lessening head, but it got amongst some wreck, and unable to tell any more whether he saw it or not, he returned to his men with his eyes full of tears. End of chapter 33